a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not understand our te- do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The next Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were, inf- you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim, um, for those extremely kind words about me earlier. Well, if I'd known you were going to say them, I wouldn't have invited you. But um, uh, thank you. Yes, and uh, um, uh, thank you, Hannah. And uh, yes, and as um, 
Peter's been telling us it is, it is a morning of, of strange and interesting um, coincidences. Um, uh, uh, we can go to the first slide if you like, Russell, because today we're beginning a five-part series on uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and um, when I put this into my sermon roster, my preaching roster, um, I didn't know that today was Pentecost Sunday. Uh, in fact, I didn't know it was Pentecost Sunday until yesterday afternoon. So if you didn't know it was Pentecost Sunday until you turned up this morning, then don't worry. I <laughs> didn't know either. Um, it is interesting also that we should look at these texts uh, um, uh, on this occasion because actually these are the texts that split St. Matt's. Uh, so um, this could be hard work. Uh, and I, I know from my own experience that sometimes it's actually really uncomfortable um, when you hear a preacher in the pulpit say something that you disagree with. That can be very uncomfortable. Um, and I think the chance of me saying something this morning that you disagree with is high. <laughs> uh, so when you feel uncomfortable, please know that I know what it's like to feel uncomfortable too. And perhaps if we've learned anything in the last 30 years, it's that we as a church, God has been showing us and helping us to, 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 to keep primary, following Jesus and loving one another and, and knowing that we don't always have to agree about everything. Um, that it's, it's a process of learning from each other. But anyway, so that's just a bit of an ad hoc introduction. Um, uh, we, we actually began looking at 1 Corinthians as a book uh, way back in 2019. And ever since then, regularly through, through that time, we've been chopping off little chunks of it to, to read and think about and pray about. And earlier this year, we looked at chapter 11, and close to the start of chapter 11, uh, we read these words. Paul writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But, dot, 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 but. And what follows after that are a bunch of things that Paul wants to talk to them about Things that are difficult, that are uncomfortable. Things that are on Paul's list of things to talk about, but definitely not on theirs. In fact, there are four things that Paul wants to talk about, and they are, firstly, the relationship between men and women and gender identity. Secondly, holy communion and where they're getting it seriously wrong. Fourth, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, sorry, third, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and fourth, the gospel of resurrection. Now, we've already looked at items one and two on that list, the relationship between the sexes and gender identity, and then Holy Communion. We already did that work back in April. Today, we start a five-part sermon series on item three, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches on this topic, for some 84 verses, chapters 12, 13, and 14 together. So there's lots to consider. But Paul begins the section with these very helpful words, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
And as we shall see, the Christians in the church of Corinth were already, they were actually already remarkably knowledgeable about the gifts of the Spirit. Indeed, knowing a great deal more about the gifts of the Spirit than perhaps the vast majority of churches do today, indeed. But as with the other topics that we've considered, Paul is not writing to them on matters that the Corinthians know nothing about but rather he is writing to them on issues that they think they know a lot about, such as the Lord's Supper, but that actually they need serious corrective surgery in order to function healthily. So then, as we'll see, this whole section actually can be rather disappointing. If we're hoping for a textbook on spiritual gifts, It's not a categorical inventory of what the gifts are and how to use them. We only get anything close to that with perhaps two gifts, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. No, indeed. Paul has lessons for a church that does indeed, to a considerable degree, know quite a bit about moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul, nevertheless does not want them to be uninformed. Or perhaps that could be translated ignorant. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. And this word would have been a red, red flag to a bull, so to speak, because the Corinthians, as we know, prided themselves on their knowledge. Clearly, correctives are needed. And Paul supplies them in the context of seven lessons. And those seven lessons are these. Firstly... Our God speaks. Secondly, different gifts, same spirit. Third, a variety of gifts is distributed for the common good. Four, in variety, there is mutual interdependence. Five, the supremacy of love in ministry of any kind. Chapter 13, most famously. Then in chapters 14, two lessons. Firstly, the nature and place of unintelligible and intelligible spirit-inspired utterance. And lastly, the nature and necessity of order in spirit-led worship. I will attend to lessons one, two, and three today, and uh, Dr. Mike Crouch will teach on lesson four next week. So then, lesson one, our God speaks. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul uses a triple contrast. Before versus now. Mute idols versus the Spirit of God. Jesus, be cursed versus Jesus is Lord. Now, the Old Testament teaches us a very great deal about the spiritual consequences of idolatry. 
here, whether they're of Jewish or Greek background, Paul paints every single one of them as pagan. Uh, The Greek word is actually Gentile. Uh, In the sense of a background, whether they were of Jewish background or of Gentile background, they were all pagans, we're all pagans in the sense of not being able to hear the voice of God nor speak the voice of God. Once we were all lost in, in deafness and muteness. But the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ comes with a promise, the gift, the sure gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's one thing that the Holy Spirit is known for, above all, and that's speaking. The God of the Bible speaks through his Spirit by means of his people, proclaiming Jesus, his Son, as Lord. So, lesson two. Different gifts, same spirit. Paul's lesson comes to us in the form, actually, of poetry. Uh, A three-line parallelism. It's really beautiful to present his poem in hyper-literal form. Verses 4, 5, and 6 go a bit like this. And there are varieties of grace things, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of works, but the same God, working the everything in everyone. And we can probably guess with some confidence now as to the problem in Corinth. Some gifts in Corinth were lauded and exalted. Other gifts of the Holy Spirit were denied or despised. And we've seen this kind of problem, haven't we, again and again in the Corinthian church through Paul's letter. They were a proud and boastful bunch, hierarchical, with a strong honor-shame culture. And this unchallenged worldliness manifested itself in divisions and squabbles and um, sectarian arguments. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. We will see later that this group of Christians in Corinth probably had a high and exalted view of the gift of tongues, its very unintelligibility somehow being evidence of super-spirituality, otherworldliness. But likewise, it would seem that the gift of prophecy was undervalued or indeed even despised. It's very usefulness making it ordinary and mundane. The high value they put on tongues and the low value they were putting on other gifts, presumably this was pushing this church toward uniformity. Uniformity of spirituality. They were beginning to all look the same. But the message of chapter 12 in toto is this. Diversity, not uniformity, is essential for a healthy church. Variety is from God. But Paul's words not only affirm the validity of a wide variety of giftings and ministries, but also affirm that it's all from God. For example, if I am going to pursue the ministry of ditch digging, I'm going to need three things. 
Firstly, I'm going to need the gift of a shovel. I'm also going to need the gift of the opportunity of a planned ditch. And I'm going to need the energy to do the actual work. Paul is saying here, the tools for ministry, the opportunity for ministry, and the energy for ministry all come from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so now to lesson three. A variety of gifts is distributed for the common good. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's think about those phrases. To each one. Every Christian gets spiritual gifts. This isn't optional. This isn't only for some Christians. Thus, if anyone might be thinking to themselves, oh, it's not my place to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did, then this verse proves them wrong and reminds us that following Jesus means copying Jesus. Manifestation of the Spirit. These are gifts uniquely given to Christians on the basis of them being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Thus, Paul has in view gifts that are different from that which we might call natural gifts. He isn't talking about being musical or athletic or being highly intelligent or being the recipient of a long and expensive education, good as all those natural gifts are. He isn't talking about being strong or healthy or about having leisure time. At our disposal, good as those circumstantial gifts are. If you or your child is in a gifted and talented program at school, then they or you are in a program labeled by way of two biblical words that are now being used in a completely different way to how the Bible uses them. For I'm sure in that gifted and talented program, they're not talking about gifts of the Spirit. They're talking about natural gifts, circumstantial gifts, etc., etc. So then, Paul is not talking about natural gifts, but rather about spirit gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Although, if we were to give that some thought, we might reflect upon the fact that whilst the two categories are not necessarily wholly unrelated, surely they are not the same thing. That's the point. They're not wholly unrelated, but they are not the same thing. Last phrase for the common good, and therefore not for personal political advancement through the ranks and hierarchies of the church, for the common good. Uh, Verse 8, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers, to another, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. Nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are mentioned in this section. Paul, in another letter, talks about nine fruits 
of the Holy Spirit. Nine gifts of the Holy Spirit in this section, but then at the end of the chapter, he'll talk about another two gifts, the gift of helping and the gift of guidance. And in Romans 12, he lists seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, but there's only one gift there in common with this list. We we are safe to assume, therefore, that these lists are illustrative and in the service of some greater point, rather than being meant to be comprehensive. When it comes to deciding on what Paul means by each gift, uh, I'm continuing now back in Corinthians 12, what does Paul mean by each of these nine gifts? Well, we tend to identify each gift by way of what these words mean elsewhere in Scripture. Or perhaps sometimes cautiously by means of our own experience. But in every case, most importantly, we look to Jesus and his ministry as our model. So then, what is Paul talking about? Well, I don't think we need to worry too much today about thinking about prophecy, tongues, or interpretation of tongues. Because we'll be thinking about those things in detail in a few weeks' time. But let's start with message of wisdom and message of knowledge. Uh, These phrases occur here uniquely. So we don't necessarily get a sense of what Paul means from other texts. But I don't think those phrases need to be considered mysterious. In the Old Testament, wisdom is practical and knowledge is valuable. Wisdom is knowing what's best to be done and doing it. Knowledge is valuable because it's power. An education ideally should provide knowledge together with wisdom. And the Bible offers us that education that we need, making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and teaching us that his disciples have the opportunity through him to acquire uh, all the wonderful, wise things we need. Knowledge, insight, discernment, wisdom, good judgment, prudence, discretion, instruction, and understanding, etc., etc. These all come to us from Jesus, for fear of the Lord is the beginning of all such good things. The gift of faith, what's that about? Well, to believe in Jesus is to have faith. And we are justified by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. To speak, though, of a gift of faith as a gift of the Holy Spirit that is manifest in one Christian but not necessarily in another is obviously to speak of something different. Perhaps we might say that the gift of faith is when one person is just able to trust God for good things in the face of something that leaves most Christians discouraged, frightened, or confused. Jesus displays great faith in the face of storms that terrified his companions. Jesus commended a centurion in Matthew chapter 8, saying, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. For this centurion was able to trust Jesus to help him in a way uh, that others couldn't. The judges in the book of Judges were typically women and men of faith. Knowing that God could defeat any enemy 
even when, humanly speaking, the armies of Israel were outnumbered and outsmarted. And David exercised great faith when he saw in Goliath a great pest rather than a great threat. The gifts of healing and of miraculous powers. Well, no shortage of information about what the Bible means here, no shortage at all. There, there is much to be learned about the gifts of healing and miraculous powers by reading about Jesus in the Gospels and the Apostles in the Book of Acts, a very great deal indeed. And many good books have been written about such things. As Habakkuk has been showing us at the uh, Saturday services the last three weeks, the, the right way, the right way to pray about God's actions today is to pray that he might do again in our day what we know he is capable of from his works in history. Repeat, please, to use Habakkuk's words. It is entirely reasonable and biblical then for any and every Christian to desire to pray for healing and to see healing done in the form of miraculous answers to prayer. Jesus taught his disciples, very truly I tell you. In other words, what's coming next is really important, emphatically and eternally true, really important. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The gift of distinguishing between spirits. Again, the scriptures don't leave us guessing. Jesus teaches us to judge a tree by its fruit. John writes in his first epistle that spirits must be tested, and he teaches therein how to do that. Jesus is good at discerning spirits, rejecting that which is satanic, even when the voice is quoting the Bible. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Well, at this point, Paul affirms the full sovereignty of God as the giver of gifts. He is the one who decides. Who decides which gifts you get? God decides. Paul also affirms the personhood of the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. This apparently does not preclude our will or our desires being involved as well. For Paul will later on say twice that we should eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. We've looked at lessons one, two, and three. Our God speaks. Different gifts, same Spirit. A variety of gifts is distributed for the common good. These three lessons are preparatory. Paul is actually working up to his first major point, which is to be found in the next section, and is a direct answer to the, to the divided, hierarchical, snobbery-ridden church in Corinth. And Mike will lead us there next week. So then, I've done my best 
to exegete this passage, which is to say to unpack its meaning in its original context and presumably, hopefully, um, to do so um, responsibly and prayerfully. The thing to aim for is application. How will we let this change our lives in response to what we've read? I don't think we necessarily have to be in a hurry to decide what the application is just yet. We've got four weeks to go. And one reason is that perhaps even before we should attempt application, we should exegete ourselves. In in other words, we've exegeted the text, we've tried to understand that faithfully, Maybe we should try to understand ourselves so that we understand the very significant cultural gap to be bridged, that culture gap between us and the world of the first century. Now, with respect to bridging that gap, there are three historical events that we need to talk about. I will defer talking about the Pentecostal awakening of the the early 20th century to a later time. That leaves us with two historical events for us to consider today. The European Reformation of the 16th century and the European Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. In each case, we need to understand what happened then in order to understand how we might misunderstand Paul's text today. So then, in the 16th century... The European Reformation was, in essence, a bunch of people coming to the realization that it is the Bible and not the Pope that gets to decide what authentic Christianity really is. And one of the great catch cries of the Reformation was, sola scriptura, a Latin phrase meaning scripture alone. And the truth that that phrase was meant to preserve was the truth that the Bible alone is the final authority on matters of gospel belief and Christian doctrine. The Anglican Church is a reformed Protestant Christian denomination. Article 6 of the Anglican Statement of Faith, sometimes called the Articles of Religion or the 39 Articles, Article 6 says this, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, presumably also any woman, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In other words, the Bible is the final authority on what authentic Christianity actually is. And having made Holy Scripture for us as Anglicans the final authority, the only final authority, Article 6 thereafter goes on to define Holy Scripture as the 66 books um, that we, together with other Protestant denominations, recognize as the Holy Bible. The European Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries can be understood as the dawn of the age of reason, meaning an end to the age of superstition and magic. A modern age dawning and taking away the power 
of pre-modern thinking. Um, two really good films to watch if you want to understand more about pre-modern versus modern thinking. Two really good films to watch, and they're both comedies, and they're really good films, um, a, 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 where we see modern thinkers challenging pre-modern beliefs. Two really good films are Cold Comfort Farm, set in 1920s England, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, set in 1930s USA. And one part of this inheritance for us is that in contrast to every other society today and in the past, we as Westerners tend to think that the material or physical explanation is more powerful and has more authority than the spiritual explanation. Indeed, normally as Westerners, we believe that the material physical explanation is the only explanation. And thus so, we now live in a culture, a secular culture, that is essentially anti-supernaturalist. Supernatural explanations are absolutely banned from public discourse when it comes to discussing the issues and challenges of our day. From climate change to COVID-19 to war in the Middle East, only non-supernaturalist explanations and solutions are admissible in public conversation. This is true even though the vast majority of Westerners continue to believe in some kind of higher power and claim to have some form of spirituality. It is perhaps not very surprising that a very considerable proportion of Western Christians are what we might call concessional anti-supernaturalists. In other words, having hopefully obtained a special concession in order to believe in the God of the Bible, we are otherwise, to all intents and purposes, anti-supernaturalists in our response to everything, lest we fear we are mistaken for illiterate hillbillies from Alabama or superstitious peasants from Sussex. Therefore, as concessional anti-supernaturalist, enlightened Reformed Christians, heavy with many tons of recently acquired cultural baggage, we say things like, God doesn't speak today except through his word, the Bible. Not seeing in our blindness that that's not what the Bible says. God doesn't speak today except through the Bible well, such a belief is nice and it's safe. It safeguards the Reformation, it protects sola scriptura, and defends the Bible as the authoritative word of God. And it safeguards our delicate post-enlightenment sensibilities, defending us against the possibility of anything spooky happening at church. Because, of course, as Christians, the last thing we'd want to see happen at church is something spiritual lest we become, you know, the Christian version of paranormal caught on camera. <laughs> God does not speak today except through the Bible. Well, that God speaks through the Bible is unquestioningly true, unquestionably true. But to say that God speaks only through the Bible is to contradict the plain teaching of Scripture. Scripture. 
And so, sadly, as concessional, anti-supernaturalist, enlightened and reformed Christians, our worldview leaves us utterly bereft of answers when it comes to understanding Paul on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, as is widely observed and acknowledged, Christians who come from non-Western contexts don't have these problems at all. As the American Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey has observed, in areas of our world traditionally closed to the gospel, astounding miracles are taking place that cannot be forced into a post-enlightenment worldview. Perhaps this is a good opportunity to rethink things from the start. For God does not wish us to be ignorant about spiritual things. May indeed the Spirit give us wisdom as we continue to read his words together. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. To the glory of the Father. Amen.